Amen. Please remain standing, and if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Kings chapter 17, and I'll be reading from verses 1 through 7. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 through 7, if you don't have your Bibles. As you can see, the text is displayed there on the screen. Hear now God's word. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, just imagine this, brothers and sisters. Elijah, this major prophet of God, this man of God, rises up to confront the idol-worshiping Israelites, people that have turned away from the one true God. He will also confront the 450 prophets of Baal, that Canaanite idol, their storm god, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, another Canaanite idol that they have worshipped and in turn angered God. This all on the top of the historic landmark, Mount Carmel, a large hill in northern Israel, Elijah challenges these false prophets before all the people of Israel. Whoever could bring fire to the altar would prove who the true God is. Either these foreign idols represented by these prophets of Baal or the one true God, Yahweh, represented by the prophet Elijah. And Elijah, if you didn't know, his name literally means in the Hebrew, my God is Jah, my God is Yah. Of course, short for Yahweh, which is spelled in the English Bible, L-O-R-D, capitalized. My God is Yahweh. Well, as some of you are aware, the prophets of Baal tried first, and they failed miserably, and then it was Elijah's turn. He prayed. What happened? God sent a fire to consume the altar. All the wood, stones, and even water at the altar were all burned up. And people began to worship Yahweh again. The false prophets were then led to their demise and all to be slaughtered. Well, this historic, mesmerizing, spectacular event is chronicled in 1 Kings 18, just one chapter after our passage today. It actually all happened in history. And so when preparing for this, I saw some pictures of present day Mount Carmel, and just tried to imagine on top of the hill the blaze of fire coming down from heaven to consume the altar. How amazing it'd be to actually just even today visit the site. And for Elijah, I'm pretty sure that must have been some type of experience. And I'm sure he must have been so excited to have been used that way. The pleasure it, the pleasure it was to see his God vindicated and proved 
that he is the true God after so many Israelites turned to wickedness and to false idols year after year. And I guess we really wouldn't blame Elijah if after this event he thought to himself, if serving God is going to be like this, if this is what ministry is all about, I am 100% in. Sign me up, God. Now, obviously, for Elijah, ministry and serving God was not like this all the time. I remember when I was in Philadelphia and interning at a historic PCA church, and I was mesmerized by their large staff, their historic building, all the resources, and they held a conference called the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, and all these famous guest speakers came in, and I said, this is great. I'm just going to eat, eat, and eat. And I thought, wow, if this is going to be ministry, sign me up. Or church planting in 2012. As a naive pastor coming from Philly, driving overnight to Chicago, planting with mostly college students towards the center of the city of Chicago. Oh, for that first year, we said, this is it. Look at us superstars planting a church in the middle of the city for God's glory. And we shared life, we shared meals, we kept each other accountable, we pointed each other to Christ. And I think all of us probably said, sign me up if this is what ministry is all about. But of course, for myself and for Elijah, oh, there's so many ups and downs of doing life before God. And we're going to have to rewind the tape some three and a half years or so before Mount Carmel, where we find ourselves at today's passage, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 through 7. And before we begin, I wanted to share the theme and overview of today's sermon, is that when God calls you to serve him, every single person in this room, when God calls you to serve him and follow him, you should beware of three things for encouragement. And these three things are what we see in today's passage. And I'll repeat these throughout. Is that number one, God commands through his word. God commands through his word. Number two, God provides by his grace. And then finally, number three, God prepares and sustains us for his work. God prepares and sustains us for his work. Now, of course, I'm not talking about nominal Christianity, where you just think you're a Christian because you go to a Sunday service here or there, or have religious habits, or you think, you know, I'm moral enough, I haven't done anything heinous, I'm good enough, and so forth. But I'm talking about people that really are set apart and consecrated for serving the Lord and following him as a true disciple and understanding the cost of discipleship. That time after time, For however long you've been a Christian, time after time, these three things happen. God commands through his word. God provides by his grace. God prepares and sustains us for his work. And so we see, verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, where he's from, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Okay, so obviously we have to explain what's happening here. First and second kings chronicles the kings of Israel. 
And a summarizing factor and theme comes from 1 Kings chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read several verses. But I think this sets up the trajectory of 1 and 2 Kings. When God says this to King Solomon, it says this, And as for you, he's speaking to King Solomon, God does, if you will walk before me, As David, your father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children... And do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. God says, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Sadly, what happens in the narrative here? Many kings disregarded this word. And fell into wickedness during their reigns. And many evil kings reigned and ruled over Israel for hundreds of years. They went in this pattern. And so in today's chapter, we have King Ahab, the seventh king of Israel. His father was Omri. First Kings 16, 25, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. But then 1 Kings 16.30, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. You get the pattern. And this is what King Ahab did. Verse 32 in 1 Kings 16, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It was almost like they were competing. How can we offend Yahweh more than the previous king? It wasn't just, let's just kind of backslide a little bit. Let's just spit in God's face and make an altar for Baal in the house of Baal. And I guess for the people of Israel, it was ho-hum. That's, that's normal to us now. And that's what idolatry does. At first, it shocks us. And then we get accustomed. Month after month, year after year, it's not that big of a deal. But it got worse and worse. Baal was a very popular idol worshipped among several nations The idol was worshipped as a god of fertility, weather, agriculture, this Canaanite god. Correspondingly, there was Asherah, was another foreign idol they worshipped from Canaan, a female goddess of fertility. Now, this obviously provoked an anger of the Lord greatly, as we see in chapter 16. And if we learned anything from Scripture, I remember my New Testament professor repeating this often in seminary, the most The obvious provoking and angering of the Lord comes from one thing. The one thing that irks God the most is idolatry among his people. Whether a a physical image that you bow down to or idols of the heart. Idolatry not just because it's an object that is worshipped, 
but idols that are supposed to be, in someone's mind, a replacement for the true God in terms of trust, reliance, dependence. And in the Bible, if you read carefully, this angers God the most and most fiercely. And I think, as an aside here, when we chase after idols in today's day, we think God looks at this and snickers and laughs it off just as a parent would laugh off a a toddler's misjudgment here or there. And we think, oh, God must think I'm cute as I slip and slide. But idols actually anger God most fiercely. And Elijah the prophet understands this and finally is directed to confront King Ahab. Now for us, Elijah is such a popular biblical figure, mainly because of what happens in the next chapter, chapter 18. But his introduction here in 17 to the Bible is very short and seemingly out of nowhere. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, that's it. That's his grand old introduction. Prophets were men of God who were specifically called by God to be his mouthpiece. Perhaps you're watching on the stream or you're visiting with us today and you're not accustomed to who prophets are. They were called by God to warn of imminent judgment to come, to speak on behalf of God about his commandments and perfect law, to predict even sometimes the future events to happen, either doom or blessing. They were specifically called by God for this purpose. But they were, most regu- they were mostly just regular type of people, shepherds, farmers, and so forth. But what is this Elijah called to do in this instance? Well, he is called for a specific reason to confront this wayward, evil king, Ahab, and says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Basically, there's going to be a massive drought. Droughts were obviously horrible, especially in that day and age. Deuteronomy 11, verse 17, droughts were a sign of judgment on Israel if they disobeyed and worshipped other idols. And for a nation dependent on agriculture, this was critical. And obviously, there is, there's this possible uh, a connection here to their idols. If you Israelites are so consumed with these idols that you think provide the rain and fertility, well, you won't get any rain for years. And God says, not until I say so will there be rain. He says, by his word. Now, the Bible tells us this drought lasts for not just three months, Three and a half years. Can you imagine that? Three and a half years. Okay, so Elijah did his job. Now what? Verse 2, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He follows God's word, Elijah does. And that brings us to our first point again. Number one, God commands through his word. God commands through his word. When you desire to be consecrated to serve the Lord in unseen things or spotlight positions or behind the scenes or in very unique ways at the church, when you desire to be consecrated and say, God, I just, whatever it is, I want to serve you. Well, you will find the commandments and being commanded and directed how to live and how to serve and your disposition of the heart through his word and we are to obey. This practically happened with Elijah the prophet. God 
instructed and Elijah obeyed. Today, we have the complete word of God before us, though. Available every day, 24-7. This is God's word for us. He sends us. He instructs us. He commands us in the Bible. He chides us by his word in the Bible. He admonishes us. He directs us. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all to obey. And just like Elijah, we are to obey the word from God also. Now, it must have been somewhat difficult. Can you imagine if God said, hey, Frank, just go drop everything for several years. And actually, Elijah didn't have any idea of how long the drought would be. He says, Frank, just go, and I'll tell you what's next later. And actually, go live next to a brook. And despite the difficulty, it must have been to stay there, Elijah still obeyed. Verse 5, he went and lived by the brook, Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This brings us to point number two. When God calls us to be his disciples and serve him in ministry, God provides by his grace. God provides by his grace. Not our ingenuity, not our intellect, not our power or strength, as we read from in Corinthians, but by his grace alone. It must have been very lonely during these three years for Elijah. Leave everything and be by yourself next to this brook. There must have been a time of great discouragement, disillusionment, perhaps. You know, I, I might have shared this once or twice before in different venues or maybe from the pulpit. But when I went to church plant in 2012, I really wasn't sure what I was getting myself into. I was living in the Philadelphia suburbs. I packed my tiny Corolla with everything I owned. I drove through the night and I was going to a place where I wasn't familiar with. I, I lived in the Chicago suburbs for several years, but never in the city or to do ministry in the city. There were moments in those first several years, or probably the entirety of my church planning experience, where sometimes I would catch myself pondering and wondering, what am I doing with my life? And poor church planters would scrape and become waiters and do Uber and Postmates and all these kind of things just to make ends meet. And myself and another friend, pastor, found this very odd job of going door to door in Orland Park and the surrounding region selling Oberweiss subscriptions. And I would ring the bell and say, would you like to have milk delivered to you? And 99%, they looked at me like I was from a different planet and said, this is not the 1950s, please go away. And I'm not trying to say this as a humble brag and say, oh, look at me, life was so hard, or to belittle that kind of occupation. For all occupations can be honoring and glorifying to God, even in the small things. So I'm not trying to say that either. But it was just so different from what I was imagining in seminary of what ministry would look like. And perhaps it was for the prophet Elijah too. But through all all of this, in the waiting, in the preparation, God provided for Elijah God provided for me, and if I talk to you sometime this week, I think you will say, God provided for you too. Even if you didn't notice it, 
while it was happening. Day and night, God provided. Now, before you're tempted to say, hey, if I serve God, can he send me literal ravens with food too? That would be great. Well, of course, we're missing the point there. More precious to us should be the word of God. As Jesus said in Matthew 4, quoting Deuteronomy 8, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God provides for us in our preparation and during our ministry to serve and be part of this great commission. And other than the word of God, day and night, God can provide through, a, by his grace, a brother or sister who sharpens you, a church family that supports you, a friend that warns you and admonishes you when nobody else will, a brother or sister that encourages you just in that right moment that text came or that email was sent or that time over coffee was cherished. He provides for us through his Holy Spirit by his grace alone. The spirit that counsels us in our time of need, convicts us of our sins, but also points us back to Jesus Christ. And so on and so on. God provides. Did we earn this? Did we deserve this intervention? Did God look at our hearts and say, Robin, that's good enough. Now I'm going to send you my grace. Absolutely not. That's the whole point of grace, an unmerited favor of Almighty God. This was all by grace for Elijah. And so our final verse 7, and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And that leads us to our final point, number three, God prepares and sustains us for his work. God prepares and sustains us for his work. Notice in our points, God is the main subject. And the prepositions, notice those two, through his word, by his grace, and now for his work. And the funny thing is, if you thought this was all fun and games for Elijah in this paradise brook, it wasn't. Eventually, the water dried up because of the judgment over Israel, this drought but undoubtedly, God was training Elijah during these years to grow in dependence on the grace of God, whether he had plenty or nothing. He had to realize that it is God that sustains, not the fireworks of altars blazing with fire or ministry feats that everyone talks about, but in the little moments of our preparation, in the moments where we believe that God is sustaining, God is preparing me through all these things. That is so critical in growing as a personal disciple of Jesus Christ, as a servant of Almighty God. And as we prepare for our ministry kickoff in a couple of weeks and our fall launch, and you seek discernment and how to serve the Lord in our church community, in our city, and even in our region or missions work, oh, as salt and light to this dark world, don't immediately daydream about, ooh, if I serve, when is the fire going to come down? Or the big moments of glorious ministry success and so forth. But to see how God is preparing you, sustaining you, strengthening you in the quiet moments of ministry life and using your gifts for his glory, for his work. Oh, church, we need to be reminded this is for his work, not your work, not your agenda, not your ambition or your success. This is for the Lord's sake that Elijah completely understood. So to summarize again, number one, God commands through his word. God provides by his grace. 
and God prepares and sustains us for his work. Two simple applications then. Number one is this. Be prepared in season and out. Be prepared in season and out. Ministry has seasons of major advancements, seasons of being fed by the ravens, and also correspondingly seasons of dryness, of feeling distant. But why? God allows us to go through these seasons for a purpose. It's part of our process of becoming more and more dependent and more and more like Christ. Mostly we don't even realize it while we're going through them. I've shared once about a Middle Eastern missionary, my friend from Philadelphia, he went for 10 years. I don't know if he's even saw one convert. He learned a lot just by God sustaining him in very difficult mission situations. The Apostle Paul, after that road to Damascus incident of his salvation, Paul went off for three years to prepare for ministry. Why, even our Lord Jesus went through a season of trial in the desert, and even for the Lord's disciples, it was three years with the Lord before his death and resurrection that prepared them for the start of the church. We often think ministry and doing God's work should be all fireworks all the time, exciting, fun, self-fulfilling, but example after example, we, we don't see that depicted in the Bible or in the testimonies of the saints before us. In actuality, there seems to be more battles with feeling spiritually dry and depressed and drought and trial than there are fireworks, even for the great reformers that we speak a lot about. And this is the calling ahead of us. And the question is, are you still ready then to go therefore and make disciples knowing this? Are you ready to realize that it's not all about fun and games and what I can get out of this, how I can pad my spiritual resume, how I can feel fulfilled, you have to ask yourself. Think about the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, decades of what we would consider not ministry success. Professor D.A. Carson, the distinguished New Testament professor from Trinity, who is retired now, would often speak about his father, who was an ordinary pastor in the Montreal region in Canada. And D.A. Carson, as a young teen, would scoff at his father's vigilance and perseverance in that land when so many would reject the gospel of the Bible. And Carson would tell his father, just pack up and leave. Let's go somewhere else. This is just a dry land. No one is... There's going to be nothing here for us. And he stood up and left the dining table and walked out the room and said, there are still God's elect here. Think about all the churches out there and our increasing movement towards our trajectory towards becoming a post-Christian nation. Should we just give up? Or thank God for sustaining us, preparing us by grace through his word, for his work, a pattern culminating in the perfect, obedient life of Jesus, who trusted God perfectly, who went willingly and faithfully to the cross, scorning its shame, was buried and on the third day raised again. How can I or we, church, carry on? Well, Christ has already gone before us. 
to win the war for us, even though the battles commence, but to then allow us, by his perfect record, an invitation to co-labor for his kingdom. If you sit back and just think about that and meditate on that, why our God would say, you are co-laborers with me, is unfathomable. As one pastor said, once you've seen how good Jesus is, once you see how good he is, how righteous he is, oh, everything is worth following him. And that leads us into our second application point. Remember where your true treasure is. This is the big difference maker. Remember where your true treasure is. When you find the greatest treasure is in Christ alone, all the preparation, all the trials, all the ups and downs of your serving and ministry, all the mountains to climb or deep valleys to go through is worth it. But if it's for some other gain or it's to pad some other treasure in your life, you're going to quit. You're going to go off that road, slip and slide, and you'll complain and you say, "Where, God, what is this? Just like I did a lot of times in my past in ministry. But when the greatest treasure is Christ, we willingly and joyfully say, God, where's the next mountain? I'm ready. I'm ready. My eyes are fixated on you. I'm ready to go. Use me, a sinful, weak person. But when I am weak, you are strong. So don't look, church, down on a season of preparation, a season of cultivating a heart for God and his purpose. Don't overlook what God is actually doing in your heart to prepare you for works for his kingdom. We might think about our ministry launch and kickoff, and I might have ideas on everything is going to go perfectly, and we're going to win souls to Christ, and all, everyone is just going to be growing, or it could be a season of drought. We don't get to determine that. But we get to respond in obedience, whatever the Lord has before us. So remain resolutely Christ-centered, not program-centered, not idea-centered, but Christ-centered as we walk into this fray in the coming months, in the coming years. So press on. Having said that about our kickoff, as we enter into that discern in the next, this next coming month, Lord, whatever it is, small or big, how can I serve the purpose of you, God? Because yes, I say yes, the treasure is in you, Christ. Because at the end of the day, God commands us through his word. God provides for us by his grace, and God will prepare and sustain us for his work. Let's bow our heads and pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so humbled to be called your children. Oh, how undeserving we are to be saved, to be invited, not just to be saved, but to serve you, to honor you with ministry work, and that the body of Christ is all different parts, and we all come to join in submission to the head of the body, the head of the church, Jesus Christ. What a great joy it is to serve you. 
and the menial tasks or the big tasks. May we remember from scripture, this is in service to you and you alone. Yet because we are sinful, we will stray. We will complain and grumble. We will wonder why we're using the things that we do for your purpose when we could be doing so many other things. Oh Lord, be patient with us, O oh patient God. Slow to anger, abundant in covenant has said love. Oh Lord, would you warm our hearts to the things of you in these coming weeks and these coming months to set us on a trajectory to continue to obey and fulfill the great commission given to us by the Son, Jesus. And when we are weak, oh, may we relish in the truth and the fact that that is when we are strong in you. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.